Welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander. With me, Reverend Terry Menifee Gow. And me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. Just a quick word before we get started. There will be spoilers here. As we talk about the entirety of the Outlander book series, meaning all eight existing main books and then the short stories and the novellas, we will mention significant and, well, not so significant plot developments throughout the series. We could do an entire episode on whether or not this series can be spoiled, but if you haven't finished it yet and want to discover the drama as it unfolds for yourself, then we suggest you finish the series as soon as possible. Well, as if you need someone to tell you that. (laughs) And then come back and listen to the podcast. Either way, we'll be happy to have you. And now for the episode. And we are back. Yay! We're still alive. Yes, we are still alive. Still (laughs) loving Outlander. So yeah, a quick recap of who are we and what are we doing? So I'm Jamie Reeves. I'm a public theologian based uh, in Dorset, England at the moment, but originally from the States. And Terry? I am Terry Menifee Gow. I'm ordained, so I'm Reverend Terry, but mm. I am in Richmond, Virginia in the United States. And so Jamie and I are doing this uh, over the Atlantic. Type Across the water. There's yes. an Outlander theme for you there. Yes, very much Voyager. And so my background is in narrative theology and mm. film theology. That's kind of where I'm coming from on this and Jamie's got a different background yeah mine is in uh, feminist and liberation theology particularly around peace and conflict work but what we're doing here um our what we hope to accomplish is we are examining outlander through a religious theological and spiritual lens and we wish to engage or hoping to engage with the fandom about the role it plays in their lives. So we want to hear from you about the stuff that we talk about in these episodes. And we'll tell you how at the end of this podcast. Mm-hmm. This episode is about Outlander as romance fiction. So, Terry, romance has been your bag. So let's have a chat about that. What do you Yeah. What do we mean by romance just as a genre? What are some of the markers and what do we need to know? Well, first we have to talk about the prejudice against romance. So Mm. what is the first thing you think of when you hear the word romance novel? Bodice Rippers and Fabio. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Bodice Rippers. Lady Porn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Porn for women. You Um, think of hot, steamy sex scenes. Yeah. And romance does have a lot of those elements, just like a Western would have a lot of elements. You're always going to find horses. You're always going to find pistols. You're always going to find... The outlaw, um, the outcast, outlaw, who's, the go- sheriff. You know, who's going to seek justice. Yeah. When you're looking at different genres, you're going to be looking for some specific markers. And, and those markers are going to tell you what you've got as a genre. Who do you think are reading them? So when, when you think women. about readership, there yeah. Yeah, women. women primarily. And that actually is true. But there are quite a few men out there that actually read these. Mm. But, but if, you, if you're looking at a stereotype... Mm. Of, of who is the reader of romance novels. You know, who, who's the first thing that pops up in your head? Crazy cat lady. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I always think of the woman from Misery. I always yeah. think of the yeah. Kathy Bates oh, character in yeah. Misery. I always think 
She's kind of the sad woman. And so since romance is kind of, you know, coming in out of the shadows, so to speak, uh, Mm -hmm. the Huffington Post wrote this really great article called Who is the Romance Novel Reader? And and this this is kind of what they said about this. It is a truth universally acknowledged that romance readers are single women in possession of cats and in want of a man. (laughs) Nice little play on Jane Austen's (laughs) Pride and Prejudice there. Exactly. Other true facts about the romance reader. They're nice people with bad tastes in books. Uneducated, Mm. poor, Mm. bored, Mm. stupid, lack romance in their lives. Or if we want to be really specific, they're middle-aged women who are bored in their marriages and want to fantasize about hard-chiseled men. Or maybe (laughs) they're younger women who want to use them as emotional porn. So first of all, I don't know what's wrong with fantasizing about hard chiseled men. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. And I just saw this amazing quote today at, at the new Institute for Contemporary Art here in Richmond. And uh, it was a quote by someone that said, a, a slut is just a woman with a man's set of morals. Ooh. I know. Ouch. So, So, you know, while, you know, we use the word porn and it seems to be acceptable for men mm. to do that, apparently Women romance can. as ladies porn is not so acceptable. I, I do have issues, though, with considering romance lady porn. But... You know, and I said sort of crazy cat lady, but but I I like a good romance too. So, and I'm certainly not crazy cat lady. I don't like cats at all. Um, and so, <laughs> well, they're okay, but you know, I have dogs. <laughs> but I have to say, you know, as we're talking about kind of stereotypes, that kind of stuff. I won't read a book that has a pink cover. It just, if it's pink, it's wow. just, there's something in me that just is like, uh-uh, I'm not, that's not a serious book. That's not worth my time. Wow. Even me, knowing, you know, all the stereotypes, knowing all the prejudices against romance genre, I still struggle against that. If there were a guy with his shirt undone and a woman at his feet staring up at him adoringly kind of thing, I would not buy it. <laughs> I, and I would hide the cover, I have to say. This is I why would, I have a I Kindle. Because I do read some of those novels sometimes, and yeah. I do enjoy them. They're a lovely read, and mm-hmm. I generally will sit and, and with my Kindle or with my uh, on my iPhone or... Mm-hmm or on my iPad, and I'll read them that way. I, you're right. I don't want people to see me reading because I'm afraid that they're going to think that I'm... think I'm stupid, or that I'm not a feminist, yeah. or that... Or that I'm silly. Or that, yeah, that I'm silly or um, vacuous, I guess is yes. the word I'm looking for. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Now, there's this wonderful book called Dangerous Books for Girls, The Bad Reputation of Romance Novels Explained. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's written by Maya Rodale. And she did some research on romance novels um, and the readership. When she asked romance readers to describe a romance novel, the majority of respondents wrote, unrealistic. Unrealistic about what? Just unrealistic. Oh, so they didn't capture life in a real fashion. Yes, because, you know, science fiction is realistic. (laughs) Because, yeah, because when you read a a mystery novel and the detective solves it at the end every time, that's realistic. Romance novels have been, since their inception, been considered dangerous and silly stories. And why dangerous and why silly? Silly because a many have traditionally, men and and our culture have traditionally considered women's stories silly, drivel. Right. And and the people who read them 
are, are reading drivel. They're for right. drivelly people. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I guess that's a word. Let's, let's call that a word. And to label an entire genre that way, because mm-hmm. it is stories written by women for women, has created a very deep prejudice against them. You won't find romance novels critiqued by the New York Times. No. You really have to have made a huge impression first before anything like that will happen. So romance gets its start in the 11th and 12th century with the troubadours of France. And they start telling these amazing, beautiful stories of adventure and love. And and this is the time that marriages really don't take place for love. No, no. It's about transfer of land and property and political power and economic reasons, right? Absolutely. So. And and it was really to kind of seal deals between groups of people mm-hmm. so that those groups of people don't slaughter each other. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, you know, if you have children together, guess what? You're probably not hey, going to slaughter each other. Yeah. Hey. And so the troubadours start getting some notoriety and uh, their stories are beautiful and they're of love. And suddenly the women and the men start wanting to marry for this love, the women and men of the court. And, and they're not really interested any longer in getting married for political purposes. Right, right. And so this becomes a really subversive story. Mm. On top of it all, the troubadours become associated with the Albigensians, which were associated with a Manichaean heresy. Oh, goodness. So, right, you're going to have to explain this. It's been a while since I've had church history, so remind me of of this particular heresy. The Manichaean heresy is kind of a dualistic understanding of God, that there's a bad God from the Old Testament, and then this new, better God comes along in the New Testament and kind of wipes away the bad God. And that was, in the 4th century, decided not to be true. Uh, In the 4th century, with the Council of Nicaea and the Christology that they came up with, which is another big word for talking about who Jesus is and who is the Christ. Yeah, whether Jesus was, was God or not, God or human or both. And so when they came up with the Christology of the Christian church in the 4th century, they came up with the idea of the Trinity. Mm. And so the idea that there's a bad God and a good God became a heresy. But that heresy pervaded, and it pervaded well into the 11th and 12th century. And so Pope Innocent III sends his troops in and wipes out the Albigensians because they had held on to that heresy. That This was a power struggle, really. Mm. And so you have this, this immediate squish of mm-hmm. romance mm-hmm. And, and, and the romance stories, but they survive. And sometime in the 17th century, you start getting some writing of the stories by women. Mm-hmm. In the 18th century, story is written, a novel is written by a man called Pamela, and that's uh-huh. widely considered the first romance novel ever written. Oh, we know this. Jamie yes. and Lord John Gray read that book. Yes, they do. And mm. they kind of love that book. They, they talk quite a bit about it. How many times did Jamie read it? Gosh, yeah, he, several times. So, I, oh, I don't remember the specific details, but I mean, did he read it while he was at Hellwater or somewhere like that? There was a there was an implication in the later books that he had read it many times. And he yeah, yeah, that would make really sense. Well. Yeah, and had discussed it with Lord John Gray, which I think is just great. If you know, so if, as we think about romance novels, these two characters and Outlander men who are discussing the romance novel. So even though Pamela was written by a man, it quickly turns over to become an opportunity for women to write it, and women take over the writing of romance novels. And so this becomes a way for women to, A, bring in money Mm -hmm. and have a career. And again, that's really looked down upon, the idea that a woman would do this for 
for for funds for mm-hmm. <laughs> for a way to actually bring her standard of living up was or to bring her family income was really looked down upon. Yeah, the most well-known examples then would be Jane Austen, the Bronte yes. sisters. And honestly, Jane Austen and mm-hmm. the Bronte sisters were panned in their day. Of course. As being drivel. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> and now we study them yep. in high As school. As fine literature. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So so romance plus 150 years equals. So what are we going to be saying about Outlander in 150, 200 years from now? Well, I think that we're going to be saying that it's brilliant. <laughs> we already say it's brilliant. You and I are on the cutting edge of things. <laughs> and so are all of the Outlander fans in the Outlander universe. So <laughs> we're just, we, we, we just, just, we are in the know. <laughs> yeah, we are, we are following in the tradition of the early Jane Austen fans who you know, <laughs> lived and breathed everything she did. So it, they've never really been taken seriously. And in fact, one of the reasons is, you know, the unrealistic quote from the Myra Dale book, is that they're afraid that women will start believing that romance is important. God forbid. Right. So, (laughs) yeah, God forbid anything like that would happen. You know, poor, poor women who Mm. have to sludge through life without any type of love. Or just the the subversion of the power structures if if they did. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So best-selling author Tessa Dare says Mm -hmm. women are constantly told it's fantasy to Mm -hmm. expect fidelity, respect, and orgasms in this life (laughs) and to seek the same in our reading. It's not. Wow. It's not realistic to expect those things. (laughs) Jeez, man. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking too, sort of the, as we're talking about kind of the evolution of literature and I'm just even thinking, you know, the sci-fi and the fantasy stuff that that um, is really popular. Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter. The stuff that actually is taken seriously, including comic books. But they all tend to be male protagonists and male-oriented stories. I mean, even though Harry Potter has, you know, some great female characters in it. It's still Harry Potter and still Dumbledore and still... Snape, you know, all these, all these male characters. And, and just thinking about when we talk about romance, it's, it's talked about as a guilty pleasure, but the guys I know who are obsessed with Star Wars and even the people who are obsessed about Harry Potter do not talk about it as if it's a guilty pleasure. But for women, romance novels are considered guilty pleasure. So having to hide the cover of your books being careful about what you gush about. So we only gush about Outlander really to other fans or I'm trying, yeah. I, I catch myself being careful about how much I talk about Outlander to, to non-Outlander people. And that you're either wasting your time by reading romances or being judged by for being anti-feminist or, or a whole bunch of other reasons. It's a guilty pleasure. It's an indulgence. It's, it's something outside of what you're expected to be spending your time on, which is either going to work, <laughs> taking care of your kids, cleaning your house, um, you know, <laughs> keeping up this <laughs> ridiculous standard that women are expected to uphold. So I think there's there is definitely a double standard in the way in which we approach male-oriented male protagonist stories or stories that have been primarily led by fans who are male as opposed to female stories, romance stories, and stories that have fans that are primarily female. Even when I go on some of the fan sites on Facebook, I will see women apologizing for loving this for as loving a romance. For loving the story. 
Yeah. I allowed a friend of mine to, she didn't know the story. She she doesn't have cable. And so she, I, I was like, here, take my, my seasons one and seasons two. I'd love to talk with you about this. And her first words out of her mouth was, oh, well, it's a bodice ripper. As if that were a bad thing. As if that were something I should be ashamed of. Yeah. And I'm I'm not. I'm actually I actually do love the story because and I do consider it a romance. There is an issue though which I don't know whether or not we are going to be able to have time to talk about in this particular episode but about the issue around rape and violence against women in the yeah. romance genre. That is an issue and and we're not sideswiping that and going yeah 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 that, you know it doesn't matter because it does. And there would be feminists who would say, we don't read romance because X. But the issue is going to be, well, do you not read fantasy because there are instances of violence against women in fantasy? I think we tend to, within romance, we tend to paint it with a really broad brush. And so badly written romance novels, then if you read one badly written one, then, oh, all romance novels are are written badly. Well, and detective novels always start out with some kind of violence against someone. And the number of dead women in crime and mystery novels is serious (laughs) well i am here to say that the demographics do not actually hold out to our stereotype of uh, the romance reader in myra dale's book she goes on to explain that 84 percent of romance readers are women and 16 percent are men that i find fascinating that is up from nine percent in 2005 and I'm thinking, too, about Joe Abernathy <laughs> and Claire. Well, Joe Abernathy certainly knew that story. And Voyager, oh, yes. what is it? The Rogue Pirate or whatever the name of it was. He knew those stories. And, and he, even, he was able to quote some of it, too. Yeah, he, like, he could. Where are you at? He'd read it enough um, <laughs> enough times that he even knew that. Yeah. And Diana Gabaldon does nod to it because she has been called mm-hmm. a bodice ripper before. In yeah. every one of her novels, there is a moment where one of the females has her bodice ripped off of her. And I, I, I love that It's always with us sort of little wink wink I think yep. when she writes that of kind of well you said yeah, that I might be a romance <laughs> novel so how about we just stick this in also just so you know the majority of romance readers do tend to be older they're between 30 and 54 but 59 percent of them live with a spouse or partner wow so they're not single crazy cat lady and mm-hmm. their average income is 55k a year uh, fifty five thousand dollars that's in u.s dollars and 73 percent have a bachelor degree or higher, so they're not stupid. In fact, the deal is that romance fiction has had the largest share of the consumer market, somewhere between 35 and 40% of the paperback market, for the last 30 years. Wow. And it is a $1.8 billion business. That's huge. Yes. It, it continually outsells other fiction, including science fiction, detective fiction. It consistently outsells it. So my question then is, if that's the case, when you walk into your local bookstore, how come you don't see them in the front? piled up, you know, I'm just thinking here in the UK, we have Waterstones and you walk in and as far as I know, there isn't a romance section or at least not one that looks like what I would expect it to look like. So where are they sold? Where do people buy them? How do you get into that world? I guess that's a really good question. I know how I got into the world. So I I read some romance fiction, but not, you know, not really the, (laughs) the, the bodice ripper ones until I think I was probably 21 when I 
picked up my first novel and I read them much younger. (laughs) 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 They were pretty much my sex education. I stole them from my mother. But so I didn't get them in a bookstore. I got them from my mom. And I don't know where she got them. I guess she got them from the library or a used bookstore or charity shop, something like that. I, I found mine. I was uh, doing temp work right after college. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was bored. I was just answering phones. And so mm-hmm. I went and they like had a whole Like Claire stack in of... the hospital, bored, yes, sitting in the bored, waiting room. Yes, bored, sitting in a waiting room and <laughs> waiting for the phone to ring. And I remember just... I remember my cheeks getting brilliantly red going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Really? This is what they're writing? That's how that works. <laughs> oh, yes, because I kind of needed to know, even yeah. at 21. So, yeah. yeah, I was hot and steamy while I was mm. reading those. Email us or something of how did you get into your, where did you get access to your first romance novel? What was the story behind that? <laughs> what was your entry point into your addiction? <laughs> what was your gateway drug? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wonder how many of them were Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's this great story about from Racked back in... I think it was last... Maybe 2016, I think that story came out about a bookstore in the U.S. Okay, so tell me about the bookstore in the U.S. They were a romance bookstore, right? Yeah, and an aptly named The Ripped Bodice was the name, <laughs> is the name of the bookstore. Um, it was in California. I want to say Culver City or somewhere like that. And one of the owners was talking about, you know, that there's a stigma that you can't be a smart girl if you read romance. They're just trying to dispel that idea. They, she tells a story about a man who came into the shop. She said there's actually quite a few men who come in and kind of have a look around and some might have a bit of disdain but others are just kind of curious. And he says, do you really think that you need to have a store this big just devoted to romance? And so the owner responds, well, how many comic book stores are there in the States? And he answers, oh yeah, well, Good point. That link is on the on the blog page and we'll post that on social media too so you can read that story for yourself. But I think that's a really important point that there's no there's no stigma really for obsessions around comic books, around Star Wars, around good lord, walking dead or you know like any of these kinds of stories and yet for romance there is you were talking too about how new york times never covers really romance novels so Maya riddell's book she talks about 191 times the new york times bestseller list had nora roberts on it and i loved nora roberts when i especially when i was in university i read a lot of her so 191 times she was on the bestseller list for the new york times twice did they actually review her books? Oh, yeah. So she was on the list 191 times. They only reviewed her twice. And Diana Gabaldon doesn't even get reviewed until Voyager. So third book in. And she was sitting on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And they don't review her until until then. So the economics are obviously there. They are mm-hmm. making tons and tons and tons of money. Many, many more people are reading romance, romance novels. Than any than other genre. And, and the majority of them are women. Mm-hmm. But see, here's the thing is they've actually turned that amount of popularity and that amount of influence into calling it bourgeois. So if Tom Clancy was to write a major bestseller that sold 25 to 30 to 50 percent of the market share of paperback novels, he would be congratulated. But so many of the novels that are out there being romance novels, that, that the market is kind of flooded with them, it's considered bourgeois. Again, it's just a, it's just a, another example or another way in which women and their efforts are different. 
denigrated, I would yes, say. Yes, absolutely. By calling the novels cheap because they're written, they're printed on cheap paper. Or badly written because they're not reviewed, because nobody right. takes them seriously. Right. La, 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 la. But if so many people are reading them, and it's safe to assume then that there are women in your church, in your synagogue, in your temple who are reading romance novels. There are yeah. women in your, in your circles, in your book circles, who are reading them, even if you're reading something, you know, a little more on the intellectual side. <laughs> And I say that with air quotes. Then why are we not talking about romance novels, romance stories in church? Hmm. I think the point would be that the church, big C, likes to control the narrative. When you control the story, you have power. And so if you can control the story, you can also control then how people think. And so the example that you gave of, was it Pope Innocent III? Yes. Was about controlling the story. Whatever story people are telling that motivates them, that moves them forward, that gives them impetus for life and for just keeping going, if he's able, if the church is able to control that story then they are able to control the people. Whereas if there's a story that's being told that isn't under the control of whatever religious structure is happening, then they can't control you. Well, and I think that's what makes romance so subversive because it is stories by women who have traditionally not been in leadership position in the church. Or taken seriously. Or taken seriously. And it is stories about (laughs) women and about Mm -hmm. how they survive and how they demand love. Mm -hmm. We'll get into all of this in the third episode, I promise. Here's the thing, is that theological circles with all of the academia that comes behind that have given other narrative genre space to exist. They've engaged theological discourse with mythology, with popular myth, with Mm -hmm. fantasy, with epic stories, with mystery, Mm -hmm. horror, science fiction. There's numerous, numerous things on Star Wars out there because, Mm -hmm. I mean, George Lucas creates this religion called the Force specifically for the story. There's stuff written about Agatha Christie. There's stuff written about Stephen King in theology. There's a whole section in religious studies now about Game of Thrones and all the different religions that are in that series. You can take classes in seminary on the Star Trek series and the Star Star Trek universe, as well as everything having to do with Lord of the Rings. Even Joss Whedon, who is a well-known atheist, has got theological discourse written about all of his work, including Buffy, Angel, Dollhouse, and the Marvel Avengers movies. Yeah, so why not romance? But I'm also, as we've just listed out all of these things, with the exception of Buffy, they are all male stories. Yeah. So why not romance? (laughs) Because it's girls. And the church has never, ever really been comfortable with women, women's needs, women's bodies. And women's power. (laughs) <laughs> women's power most assuredly they they're definite women's orgasms they really freak out over those dear uh, god <laughs> please don't have one of those that yes. would disrupt my sermon so <laughs> So why not have this conversation with the people in your congregation, whatever your congregation may be, about romance, and why not engage in a theological discourse about it? Now, some people will say Outlander is not a romance. Well, even Diana says it's not a romance, right? Right. Uh, When she first wrote it, (laughs) she was really not happy (laughs) when they wanted to make the first novel a romance. In fact, she said, no, 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 it's not. And again, she went into the stereotypes, romance, Bosoms, Fabio, Bodice yeah, Ripper. Poorly written, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, so her her publisher sat on it for 18 months and came back to say, we are going to sell this novel, we're going to put it out there, and we're going to do it as a romance genre. And she said, 
no, I, I, it's not for me. I guess I won't be going with you guys. And they said, well, keep in mind that bestsellers in sci-fi paperback sell 50,000, but bestsellers in romance is going to sell 500,000. Wow. Maybe I should change my mind. Yeah, so... <laughs> But even even now, if you go to like uh, if you go to any of the fan sites on Facebook or any other mm-hmm. social media, there will be arguments against that it's not romance. That it's not romance because mm-hmm. of the stereotype. And this really truly is a multi genre series. It, it does have so many different genre in it. So you've got time travel. Definitely. So that would fall into science fiction. It's obviously historical fiction as well. Yes, there's adventure. Yeah. I mean, all of Voyager is nothing but one big gallop across an ocean. Which, to be fair, though, I would also say that Voyager is the most similar to romance novel stereotypes than of any of them, which is. Another reason maybe why it's probably my least favorite, shall I dare to say, was because there were too many almost wink, n- wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of to the to the romance genre in Voyager for me. It was just kind of, even when Claire and Joe Abernathy are talking about this romance novel that's sitting in the doctor's, right, 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 right. you know, it was almost self self-referential in its yes. understanding of romance novel. But anyway. Kind of staring yeah. at its own belly button in a way. Pretty much yeah. in some yeah. ways, yeah. And it's just kind of like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I would also argue that it, there's some supernatural elements. So, yeah, so Buffy yeah, is in would. this in some ways. Yeah. There are no vampires, but there are ghosts. You, you you get the ghost of Claire. You get the ghost of Jamie. They, they tend to pop up. And, and if you look at some of the side novels, mm-hmm. you've got the king of the fairies coming through. Mm-hmm. If you look at the uh, the Scottish prisoner. Well, the supernatural slash fantasy slash yes. sci-fi, it all yes. sort of starts to meld together, doesn't it? While it is a multi-genre series, our argument, Jamie's and mine, yeah, yeah. is that Outlander really truly is a romance. And it's okay to say that it's a romance, embrace mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. because romance is actually a really, really rich Mm-hmm. and vibrant genre. Fans of romance who think that Outlander is romance felt a bit betrayed by Diana's statements that it was um, that it wasn't a romance in the sense that it's just kind of throwing the romance genre under the bus, so to speak, just because yeah. this was an opportunity to redeem the genre in some way to say, actually, no, it doesn't all have to be X, Y, or Z, as we've talked about as far as stereotypes go. And this is, you know, was an opportunity to say, no, this is something different. I agree with that. I, mm. I think that it was kind of not so inclusive of Diana to mm. to want to step out of the, the genre rather than embrace the genre and her fans who really do love romance in general mm. Mm. and love how she has depicted romance as something beyond the wedding ceremony or beyond yeah. the engagement. And that's yeah. that's where I'm, I, I think she she knows this. I mean, she quotes this and she says this is this is more than just a culmination at a wedding altar. But and it's not a courtship story. No, it's not a courtship yeah. story at all it's a it's, it's a romance it, it's a love story now to be romance genre mm-hmm. there are actually four criteria mm. and tell us what those are <laughs> these are the four criteria taken from romance fiction a guide to the genre written by Kristen ramsdell and this is pretty well known as being the bible on all things romance genre right okay and she has four criteria The plot must focus on the developing love relationship or courtship between the protagonists. Which, fair enough. That's, I mean, or courtship. So courtship can be part of that. Um, 
but it's also the developing love relationship and we get that all through Outlander we do hey I guess you could you could interpret developing love relationship as a as the early stages of a love relationship but I think that would then assume that a love love relationship gets somewhere and stops yeah exactly and it 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 sometimes does in the romance genre as it does it does in the genre as a whole but in outlander it doesn't it continues to develop it continues to to deepen it continues to grow criteria number two there must be a satisfactory ending usually called the HEA or the happily ever after. Although satisfactory can mean something other than an engagement or a wedding. I would argue that in most of the the novels, the eight novels that Diana has mm. is written, uh, we get a happily ever after or we get hope at the end. I, yeah, maybe, maybe not happily ever after, but there is a, it doesn't wind up. Because, of course, she wants you to to read the next book. And it is a continuing story. But there is a satisfactory culmination. I agree with that. I think that there's there's hope. And that gives me some kind of satisfaction that the relationship will go on. There's also an element in the Outlander books where in every book there is between Jamie and Claire a renewal of their vows or a hearkening back to the wedding in the first book or this replay basically of that instance that I think also fits this in the sense of the happily ever after a reminder they are in this they are in this for the long haul it no matter what happens they are going to continue to be there for each other and with each other and it's kind of like landmarks in their relationship yeah. is it you know this the, the very first book is is them getting married but then yeah. her choosing to be with him even after what happens in Wentworth yeah. prison and after blackjack randall rapes him brutally and he mm-hmm. does he doesn't want to live mm-hmm. and the second you know novel it's 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 after you know her after loss of faith after yes you know, so each book has a moment of mm-hmm. I choose you and let's mm-hmm. deepen. And I think that that's kind of the satisfaction that I need yeah. to continue the story. The The third criteria is the story must engage readers emotionally, allowing them to participate in the courtship process. Now, I, Jamie? <laughs> I know what do, you're going to ask. <laughs> Have I engaged with Outlander emotionally? Oh, Have my you? God. <laughs> I have laughed i've cried i've worried every possible emotion i have gotten angry i've thrown it across the room yeah oh there were many moments when i had the 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 the, the scene with geneva i was just like oh you've got to be kidding me i was so angry at jamie i was so angry i was like no you've betrayed me yeah. <laughs> You and a whole bunch of other people felt that too. Oh if, yeah, if fandom is is any guidance. <laughs> yeah. I I am I am in deep I am in deep deep waters when I enter mm-hmm. that that narrative, mm-hmm. and my heart is fully engaged every mm-hmm. moment that I'm reading it. It's just mm-hmm. Diana has written such fully fleshed out characters that I feel like they are family in mm-hmm. many ways. It's the last book, right, where Claire and Lord John Gray hook up yes <laughs> another place i wanted to kind of go no <laughs> i found okay so you said no i cried pretty much through the whole thing really uh, yeah because i knew it wasn't about them i knew it was about the grief that they had over losing jamie i was upset at their marriage is what i was mm. upset at because i i mean we as the reader knew jamie was still alive 
But and they didn't. They so did. I, un- I understood that they didn't. And I understood that it wasn't about love and that it was about keeping Claire safe and that Jamie would want that if that was, you know. So I, so that was fine for me. But it was uh, engaging <laughs> emotionally. I'm, I'm just thinking about that story. The night that they spend together that we that we get the description of in the book mm-hmm. is is actually a very, it's a passionate scene. And it's, it's hurtful at the same time. Which I think is why I cried through the whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, I, I really appreciated that scene. I, again, I, I get I get emotionally involved in stories like this too. So mm-hmm. I, I keep wanting to scream at Claire and Lord John, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Come on, I know something you don't. Don't yeah, listen I, to I, me. I just saw Romeo and Juliet again on stage this past weekend. I just saw it on Sunday. And every time I go in there, I keep hoping somebody is going to get a clue that that stupid... She's not really dead. Yes, that that stupid monk will be able to get into the city and give Romeo the, the message... <laughs> I guess that's the engaging the readers emotionally mm-hmm. bit that really good writing will do. Mm-hmm. Fourth criteria. Although there are often other things going on in a romance, some have said that if the romance is the last thing that is resolved, as opposed to a mystery or uh, a death or whatever, it is a romance. So a story where two cops working together on a case, they capture the bad guy, all that kind of stuff, and then they hook up then the story is really about them and not about the crime. And so it's a romance as opposed to a mystery. Right. I think that Outlander does this. Again, it yeah. goes back to that satisfactory ending. Yeah. It begins with Claire with Frank in the very mm. first books, but it quickly goes with her and Jamie. And then and then it ends with them, again, having committed to each other again. And I can't imagine, even though the series isn't finished, I can't imagine that the series is going to end focusing on the American Revolutionary War or whatever (laughs) else. It's going to be about Jamie and Claire. Yeah, it's not going to be about Jamie and William. No. It's not going to be about Lord John Gray and Jamie. No. The story is going to begin with them, and it's going to end with them. It's going to end with them. Yeah, you're right. So I think it meets all four criteria, because Jamie and Claire really are the center of the story. They are the part of it. If, if either of those, if Jamie or Claire were taken out and or their relationship together taken out, the story would not exist in any form or fashion that we know it. No, if, if Jamie had died at Culloden or had died on the mountainside or had died any of the other, you know, on, on the trip back the from Scotland, times. then the story ends. Because this is a story between Jamie and Claire. And so it is a relationship story. And it is a story about their relationship. Which is why I think it... To me, that's the strongest argument for this Mm. being a romance. Definitely. It fits all the other genres too. In the sense of being historical, adventure, time travel, science fiction, supernatural. But at the end of the day, it's about Jamie and Claire's relationship. Which is a romance. Absolutely. And that's what you want to see on the screen when you're watching it. There is a reason why the wedding episode is still the most popular and favorite episode of of every as far as the tv series goes i can think of other reasons (laughs) (laughs) we all could think of other reasons i'm getting warm again (laughs) if you're good most fans i of course i don't have any data to back this up but just from the conversations that people have on fan pages it seems to me that most fans, the wedding episode is going to be the one that they you go know, to. You know, I've got a I've got a good friend that I work with who loves the series, loves mm-hmm. the lo- loves the, the the show as well, mm-hmm. and her favorite is Castle Leoc. Really? Yes, that it, she has watched that one over and over and over again. 
It's it's the moment that Jamie tells Claire, "You need not be afraid of me." Ah, uh, when he when he first acknowledges that he loved her. Yes, and, and you need not to be afraid of you anyone be, else as long as you're with me. me. It's that moment of, God, I don't know that it's sacrifice, but it's it's stepping up to say, "I will claim okay. you. You will you will be under my protection." The other one, everybody got all head up about this past season, print shop. Oh God, yes. So. <laughs> The wedding episode and the print shop. Come on. I think I've read the print shop scene over and over and over again. I know I've read that the wedding chapter over and over and over again. I've got it practically <laughs> memorized. And you know, it's funny because when I first read it, I thought it was pretty hot. Mm. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't remember being that hot. <laughs> and I go back and I re- reread it and I'm like, well, this is fairly tame compared to what I was watching. <laughs> the director did a great job. <laughs> she, she sure did. did. <laughs> So our arguments uh, at the beginning of all of this, this crazy conversation that we've been having, mm. is that uh, Outlander is worth our look. And our argument, too, is that Outlander is a romance novel, and that does not lessen the look we give it. No, absolutely not. Romance is worthy of attention as well. Smart girls read romance, too. We sure do. And we're two smart ladies who <laughs> love romance and who who find Outlander to be a rich, rich, rich field for us to mine intelligent, academic conversations about uh, theology, religion, and spirituality. We're going to talk in the next episode about romance theology or kind of building a theology of romance because I bet you didn't hear a sermon about that Sunday last when you were in church. What exactly would that look like? What's some of the work that's already been done in that way? And how can we build a theology that makes a difference for people now, for readers of Outlander? Yeah, particularly a more inclusive one, one that includes all of us and all of our genders and and all of our love. And then in episode four, we're going to be talking about the Outlander series as kind of subversive to all of the romance genre. Diana Gabaldon has, has already mm-hmm. said she still doesn't believe that it's a romance genre because it, it, it doesn't have the courtship and it ends with the uh, marriage or the engagement and that it's all about the courtship. But this is about how to stay married, a developing a developing mm-hmm. relationship. And we believe Over the course that of... 30, 40, 50 years, maybe. Yes, yes. And so how Outlander is the subversion to this traditional romance genre. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, we're going to get into that some too. Cool. And that's episode four. So we have things planned out. So we can't wait to to share it. Right. So survey questions for this episode. We really would love to have your feedback. So we're trying to capture information from fans to be able to sort of build up an idea of kind of how people think about Outlander in their lives and how it might have shaped their experiences. And so at the end of each episode, we give uh, two or three questions that we'd really like to get your feedback on. So the first one for this episode is, do you expect your life to live up to the romance fiction that you read. I think that kind of goes back to the women are having unrealistic expectations of love because of the romance novels that they read. The second question is, tell us about your experience reading romance and specifically about your experience reading Outlander. So that when we were talking earlier about letting us know kind of when you first, what was your gateway drug into romance? This (laughs) would be a good place to tell us about that. When did you first get into it? What's your experience then and now? And then how did you find Outlander? 
And then the third question is, how does Outlander differ from a typical or traditional romance novel for you? So what's different about it as opposed to what's what's the same? That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Just click on the Support Us button at outlandersoul.com and give whatever you can afford. Every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, your thoughts, your ideas. Part of the work that we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. And so we're interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. So please respond to our survey questions found on our website related to this episode or follow links you'll find on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you again in a couple weeks. See you then. Bye.
everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.